you know, me and my wife, we joke about this a lot. She says that the 80s and the 90s were a really rough period for music in general, music videos in particular, right? It's going through a little bit of an identity crisis. When I was 13, that's when Madonna came out with Like a Prayer. Yes, that means I'm older than you, because some of you don't know what that is, or you've never seen it. That's back when we were trying to figure out who was Millie and who was Vanilli, right? Every rose has its thorn, was being dedicated to, to young women all over the country by their boyfriends on the radio, back when that was cool. And uh, what else was going on back then? There was a lot of music. Huh? Fanny packs. Yeah, fanny packs. It was just a confusing moment for music. It was a confusing moment. But I remember as a 13-year-old, I wasn't even close to God. I was very far from God. And I remember seeing that video. It was pretty jacked up. He had a burning cross, and she's got bleeding hands, and she's making out with a patron saint. And I'm watching it, and I thought, well, this is weird, but I don't know what the big deal is. I mean, seriously. I mean, what's the big deal? But people were freaking out, weren't they? I mean, it was, I mean, at that time, that's probably the furthest the mainstream had ever been pushed in a music video. And still today remains probably one of the most controversial music videos ever produced. I mean, it was widely condemned all over. The Pope had a problem with it. The Catholic League, pastors all over. And it wasn't because of the lyrics. The lyrics were kind of goofy, right? They just were. They didn't really have anything to do with anything. But it was the powerful imagery of a burning cross and all the things that some people hold very sacred and very important, she was just totally desecrating. And so they widely condemned it. Pepsi freaked out, pulled their sponsorship. That album went on to be quadruple platinum. She went on to be a huge success. But the reason that happens really is because of how controversial, how real controversial the cross is as a symbol. Not, I mean, now you have recycle symbols, swastika, you know, the, 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 the fist coming out of the ground, the symbol for rebel or revolution. I mean, those are all controversial and they all carry a pretty distinct meaning, but nothing like the cross. And it's, it's because of what happened on it, but it's also because of why it happened. That's what carries the controversy. We're provoked. And I will tell you today, I want to talk about it, it is controversial to say the least. Okay, I'm not trying to be more controversial. I know a lot of people will tell the story of the cross, or they will preach the cross, and it's just the whole goal is to make you feel as rotten as possible, feel as horrible as possible, and just kind of crumble under the weight of it all. I'm not trying to do that with you this morning. I'm not trying to be a shock jock with you this morning on what the cross really is, but I do want to talk about it. Um, Wes had read for us twice today our church statement on what we believe the cross to be. We wanted you to memorize it. That's why we went over it so many times. Um, But I'll just read it to you. You don't have to put it up there. Real quick, we believe as a church, His death on the cross was in our stead and for our sake, and it was an act of love and obedience. That's very important right there. We firmly believe Jesus' work to be an effective, sacrificial, and vicarious substitution. Those are really big words, but they're really not that difficult to understand. He voluntarily received and absorbed what was due for us. Now, like many of you, I have lost friends over this. I have been laughed at because of what I believe the cross to mean. I've been ridiculed. I've been ostracized. I was almost kicked out of a medical program for it. Um, I've, ha- I've been, I mean, you, you name it. I felt it because of the weight of what the cross really means. But also the cross has broken me. It's humbled me. It's drawn me. It's fascinated me. And I've yearned every day to take it upon my own shoulders like Christ tells us to. It's very important. Now when I say cross or passion, and I might use those interchangeably, people do. 
It's really what happens in between when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and in that moment where he yielded up his spirit right after he said, it is finished. So it starts with what? He's praying in the garden, right? He's praying, he's staying awake, he's praying through the night. It's very difficult to do that, right? It's very difficult for me to do anything through the night. He's praying and his followers are sleeping, all right? They're snoozing. He's praying so hard that he's sweating blood. It's called hematohydrosis. It's a real biological... It, it really happens. It happens to people today to where your, your blood vessels around your sweat glands vasodilate, blood leaks in, mingles with the sweat, and you sweat blood. It comes from intense pressure. That's the people that get it. Hematohydrosis today is intense pressure. That's what he had. He's praying all through the night. Intense pressure. The weight of the world literally on his shoulders. He's sweating blood. His followers are snoring. You can probably hear it. And what rouses him from this awesome moment that he's having? Treachery. Judas comes, right? Judas comes with the, with the guards, the soldiers. Now, it's one thing to be betrayed. It's a total another thing to be betrayed by someone you've loved and have poured years of your life into. Remember, Judas was there when Lazarus came out of the tomb. Judas saw the fish and the bread multiplied. Judas was there for every single miracle. Blind eyes opened, walking on water. He saw it all. Christ poured his life into him. He discipled him. He equipped him and coached him. And that is who came. That is what pulled him from this amazing moment of prayer he was having. Then he was drugged into this kangaroo court, right? They couldn't even get false witnesses to agree on a false testimony. And in the process, they broke nearly 20 of their own laws in trying him. That's amazing, right? Then they falsely, inaccurately, and illegally condemned him to murder. They abused him. They struck him. They shamed him. They embarrassed him. I'm not going to go into the beatings. There's no point in that. You've seen the movies. You've heard it. One thing I found real interesting is just the whipping part where they stretch you out over a lump of wood and then two Roman soldiers, not one, two, take turns whipping you back and forth. Scholars today, medical scholars, they believe that the only thing we have comparable to that treatment right there is a shotgun blast. That's the only thing that can reproduce the carnage that that would put on an individual. It's actually meant to kill people before they went to the cross, so the cross wouldn't be necessary. So that's what happened. And then what he did is he carried what's called the patibulum, which is the horizontal section of the, the cross. Uh, we see artwork and artist renditions of Christ carrying the cross, and we usually see like this entire cross on his back, you know, and he's tugging it up some hill and everything. That's not most likely how it happened. The stipe, which is the vertical portion, usually stays put. It usually stays in the ground. The patibulum is the horizontal part, which they put on you to carry. But still, even the patibulum was about 100 pounds. Right? It's, pretty, it's pretty heavy, and he already doesn't have a back to put it on. So he's carrying this thing up, falling repeatedly to the point where they have to get Simon from Cyrene up there to help him carry it the rest of the way. But just the weight of it falling on his chest, um, they say the only thing that could reproduce that today would be like a car accident at around 40 miles an hour, where the steering wheel hits you straight in the chest. That would be the same PSI felt on your ribs as you fall with the 100-pound weight on you, not able to break your fall. That's most likely what bruised his heart. He did, he did die from a bruised heart. We'll talk about that in a minute. The iconic nails we always see, right, in artwork and in movies, push through the densest nerve centers that we have in our body, which is, or two of them, our hands and our feet. What gets me is this. He's being hung. They've already plucked his beard out by now. 
another way to further the shame. He's listening to the soldiers gamble and fight over who gets his clothes, and he's not even dead yet. He's listening to this happening, and he's not even dead yet. This is what it says in Psalm 22. Listen, whenever you read, whenever you read the Gospels, next time you do it, Keep a finger in Psalm 22 and a finger in Psalm 69. Read it alongside these Psalms. These were written almost a thousand years before this happened. A thousand years. This is what it says in verse 14. Is that where you're at? Go to, yeah, there you go. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet, and I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was a prophecy of what was going to happen on the cross. And a thousand years later, King David could have never known this, yet it's happening, right? So he was being shamed, humiliated. You see, that was the point of crucifixion. They could have killed him a million different ways. Crucifixion, the goal of that was to embarrass, was to shame, right? To expose. And it had been done for about a thousand years. Right around the time that King David was alive is when they started doing that. And so, you know, civilization being what it is, they practice different ways to amplify not just the pain, but the shame and the humiliation factor. No one had it down like the Romans did. The Romans were the last civilization to actually use crucifixion before it was revoked by Constantine, right? They had it down to a science. And that's when Christ came into the picture. So alone, naked, exposed, humiliated, denied, mocked. At this point, at this point, at this point, when mankind is murdering God on the cross, at this point, He cries out for us. At this point, He intercedes for us. He preaches for us. He prays for us. It's amazing. And to shut him up, they put a sponge in his mouth full of what is wine vinegar. Now listen, I told some people this earlier in the week. I'm going to tell you both theories on what this is. Some of you might have always wondered what that's about. The wine on the sponge at the top of a reed that they put up to his mouth. I'm going to tell you the two leading ones and you can pick whichever one you believe because I don't think it really matters either way. The first version is this. That it was actually meant as an act of kindness. You see, there's actually two different times that the sponge was lifted to his mouth. We usually just think of one. And that's usually how it's taught. If you read Mark, there's two times that that happens. Now, the, as, as the theory goes, okay, the first time it was meant as an act of kindness. Respected widows and women would be at the cross. They'd give you a narcotic drink mixed with wine to basically deaden and take the edge off the pain while you're up on the cross. Alright, it's meant as an act of kindness. Um, that is the one he denied. Because, and as the theory goes, he wanted to take the fullness, the fullness of the pressure and the fullness of the condemnation that was given to us, he was going to take fully on himself. The second kind of wine was more of like a soldier's drink. It's more like a sour vinegar wine, which is a little bit, I know it sounds horrible. I don't know that I'd ever try it. But it was supposed to be more refreshing than like even water. Okay, That's what the laborers drank. That was kind of the common drink of the time. That was actually given to him towards the end to do what? To keep him up there and keep him alive longer. That he did drink. That he did drink. right? Because you see, they wanted to see Elijah come and rescue him. Wait, wait, wait. 
Don't kill him yet. Let's see if God really gets him down off the cross. So they tried to keep him up there as long as possible. That wine he did drink. Okay? Now that's one theory. That's one theory. The second one, I'm just going to read a quote from it. I think it's also important. This is the one that, the one I just gave you is really put out there by William Lane. He's a brilliant theologian. This one's by Mark Driscoll, also a brilliant theologian. And he says this, I started reading the Bible in college and got to the place where they gave Jesus the sponge with sour wine. And I thought, that was nice. I thought it showed that there was still a little kindness out there. Then I went to Greece and Turkey, and I was in the city of Ephesus with an archaeologist. They have excavated that city, and they took us to an interesting area. There were all these seats in a rectangle, and they were all there facing each other. The archaeologist said that it was just very common. It was an ancient bathroom. And in front of the series of toilets was an opening with water, and that was how they would clean themselves. Now those who could afford it, the wealthy, would hire a slave, and the slave would come along with a long stick with a sponge on it with wine vinegar on it in order to wipe them and sanitize them. He says, I just started crying, and I'm not a crier, because I remember Jesus on the cross saying these beautiful things, and to shut him up, they stuck that nasty sponge in his mouth. There was no goodness, there was no kindness, there was no affection for Jesus. Now, That's a drastically different version of what that could have been. Once again, I don't care what you believe on that. Because whether they tried to amplify his pain by keeping him up there longer, or they tried to amplify his pain by putting something nasty in his mouth, the one thing that we can all agree on, regardless of what you pick, is the whole thing was done with intent of mockery and hatred. That we can agree on. Not a good thing either way you look at it. Right? This is the point where he cries out what David cried out in the very same psalm in chapter 22. Can you put that up there, 22.1? Now, we just read from this a minute ago. We read 14 through, I think, 18. This is the very, very, very first verse in that chapter. It's the same one that King David said. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? from the words of my groaning. You see, we read that in the gospel and we're like, man, did God leave him? What's God doing? This seems like he's overcompensating me. It seems like he's going too far. What's going on right here? We're confused because we thought that they were one. We thought that they were close. The deal is, is he's quoting the Bible. He's quoting the same chapter that was prophesying about him a thousand years ago. That's what he's doing. You see, what we don't do a lot of times is we don't read the rest of the psalm. This is how the rest of the psalm stops. And you don't have to put this up there. I'm going to read it real fast. This is in 27. Verse 27 of the very same one. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over all the nations. It's a huge celebratory ending. That's how Christ ended. Listen, he knew what he was doing. Don't feel sorry for him. Listen, don't feel sorry for Jesus. Don't pity him. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't a victim. He was murdered, but he was not a victim. Alright? He didn't trip into the cross. He wasn't drug into the cross. He tackled the cross. He went up there out of love for his father, to obey his father, to satisfy the justice that his father demanded, and he did it for love for you, and he did it for love in me. Alright? That's why that happened. He knew what he was doing. He was quoting from this. It was written about him. Okay? Now, what is happening? Why is this happening? Because he was expressing great pain. God, where have you gone? A lot of pain. Not because comfort left him, 
Not because dignity had left him, not because friends had left him, but because his father had left him. And that was the one thing he always celebrated, loved, and lived within, was the fellowship with his father. This was the very first time and the only time that the first person of the Trinity turned his back on on God the Son. This is happening on the cross. Why, Luke? Why? Because he's taking all of sin into himself and God cannot fellowship with sin. did it for us. Didn't do it for long, but he did it for us. People struggle with this now. And I get it. I can understand why. Now, Christ, at this time, right after this, he commits his spirit up. Right? And he says, it is finished. Probably some of the most, that's probably the most important phrase ever uttered by human lips on planet earth in the history of all histories is, it is finished. What is, what's finished? I mean, what's finished? I mean, yeah, his life is finished. We get that. You know, that makes sense. Law, it no longer, no longer merits your favor. Priests, they no longer mediate your relationship to God. Sacrifices, they no longer make human mankind okay with God. A nation no longer in and of itself holds the keys to God. A temple no longer holds the presence of God. All of that is finished. It's open to all people of all nations through Christ and no priests. Right? Through His sacrifice and no bulls and rams and goats and things like that. And then when all this happens... The spirit's yielded up, this professional executioner spears him in the side. What comes out but blood mixed with water. There's a sack around the heart that has started to collect water from the pressure of uh, probably internal pressure, most likely from dropping with that patibulum on his back as well. It swells up, water comes out. He metaphorically and literally died of a broken heart. That's what happened in that. Right? This is where mankind killed God, and this is very good news for us. Isn't that paradoxical? It's paradoxical. The worst moment for mankind is the best moment for mankind. Now, it's controversial, okay? This is controversial. Of all the controversies I could have picked on, of all the ones that culture says when someone preaches that, I picked one. I tried to pick one that might kind of run around in our minds and our hearts from time to time, okay? And by the way, if you do have other questions, there is a... Can you put the dead screen with our number up there? You can text this number... And we will do the best we can as elders to to answer your questions in real time. We do this every week. If you have questions, just text that and it will come through to our phone and we'll answer them here in just a little bit. But the main controversy is this. This is the one I have lost friends over and the one I think stands at the top of of the heap. Luke, I don't believe in an angry God who punishes his perfect son. Boy, don't we get caught up on that. I mean, Luke, if God dump trucks his wrath on his perfect son and beats up on his only kid, then I throw a flag on that. I throw a flag on that. I call that abuse. I call that child abuse even. And that, doesn't it feel... I mean, now, we, we would hear that and we'd go, oh, no, that's not what happened. But isn't there a piece of you that wonders, why did that happen? I mean, did that happen? There's an internal controversy as well to match the ones that we hear. Because we don't like our God angry and we do not like our cross very grotesque. We don't. I'm with you. Even in the church, when we draw pictures of God, He's either expressionless, or He has some weird emoticon, you know, like happy, or kind of happy. But it's never wrath. He's never ticked. He's never frustrated. He's not. Now, 
<laughs> That's all right. Now, this is the bottom of it. I'm going to build the foundation and work up. This is a foundation. God hates sin and He is very angry at it. He hates sin. And it's good for us that He hates it. He's angry at it. And it's love for you that He is angry at it. Every sin committed, everything that you do, is a sin against God first, and then man second. We never think of it this way. We always think of our sin as very horizontal sins, right? We never really think of them as vertical sins. But they are, and He takes it personally, right? So, what's a good example? Okay, I'm just running through the Ten Commandments in my mind, alright? I covet my neighbor's jet ski, I covet my neighbor's house, I might even covet my neighbor's wife. If I do that, who am I sinning against? I'm sinning against my bride, I'm sinning against that man, I'm sinning against his wife, even if they don't even know about it, right? And ultimately, first and foremost, who am I sinning against? God. God. I threw the first rock at him. Think, take David. David's a great example of this, right? David is a, man, I mean, he was a donkey at this one little season of his life. He kills a man for his wife. Treachery just is a cloud above the whole thing. A baby dies because of the deal. It's just miserable train wreck in David's life. And this is what his prayer is. I jotted this down. Against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Well, is that right? Not really. I mean, David missed it a little bit. But then he's dead on at the same time. He's wrong and he is right. Now he did sin against Bathsheba, Uriah, whom he murdered, the whole nation of Israel, Nathan the prophet, his own wife, his own family, the whole palace household. I mean, he sinned against everybody, but first and foremost, he sinned against God. First and foremost, the first rock he threw was against God. Why is this important? Why is this important? Because we sin all the time. But we do it against God first. Then, then is it seen as sin against mankind, right? And what is his response, his perfect response to this? Anger and hatred, and it's rightfully so. He's just in that. Anything else that he would do would be unloving. It would be weird. It would be weird. Think about it. If you were beaten to death, no, well, not death, because in the illustration would end. Let's say you were beaten like an inch from death, right? And they, I mean, they totally tromped you, like three or four guys out of nowhere. They did it, they left you in a ditch, right? They don't find you for days. They find you, they put you in the hospital, they got to like wire your mouth shut, and they got tubes going everywhere, and bones broken, and it takes days for you to even open up your eyes. I mean, that kind of a beat down, all right? Let's say that in the process of being healed, in the process of trying to get fluids in, an officer of the court comes, and he says, hey, we got some good news. We caught the dudes that did this. You did? Of course, you can't say you did because your mouth is wired shut. But you'd say something that sounded like you did. And then he goes, yeah, we did. But after we brought them in and talked to them a little bit, we realized that, I mean, what's the big deal after all? I mean, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's certainly not worth getting all that angry about. I mean, you don't, you don't want to hate on people. So we just talked to them. We went ahead and forgave them for you. They're free. They went back to work today. Would you feel very loved? Would you feel very protected? Would you feel like justice had happened? Judgment doled out correctly? You wouldn't. You shouldn't. You hated what happened. There was an anger that needed to be swayed. Rightfully so. Judgment needed to be doled out. 
When we see injustice today, we all see it on TV. You know, some rapist gets free, some murderer gets free on some weird loophole that the lawyers never saw coming or something. We see a story about that and we freak out. We think, what about the victim? Wait, what are we doing? We're angry at the sin. We're angry at the injustice. We're angry at the thing that dropped this person. We're angry at that. You should be. You should be. Our sins are personally against God. His anger and his hatred of sin against him is personal. It's real. He is not overreacting. He's not. We need, and this is the key, we need, as mankind, God's anger to be abated, swayed, and subdued against us. Okay? That's the bedrock. How does that happen? There's a word for it in the Bible. Listen, it's a long word. Forgive me in advance, okay? I want to be as relevant as the next guy. I don't think that means taking all the long words out of the Bible, though, okay? I don't think using short words means being relevant. But this is a word that we don't use a lot in in language today. And it doesn't help that a lot of the Bibles that you read, they probably took the word right on out and put in another word for it. It's called the word propitiation. See, it's hard for me to say. Propitiation. It's a long word. But it's very important. It talks about what happens in the atonement. Now the atonement, another big word, sometimes we use these words interchangeably. We just kind of use whichever one we want, we just call it a day. Atonement means that you were made at one with God. That's how I remember it very easily. I'm a pretty simple person. So at one with God is atonement. That's done through what Jesus did. Now propitiation is the gears behind it. That's how it works. Propitiation is how atonement even works. And it's actually used in four very, very important texts. I'm only going to read one of them to you today. Can you put 1 John 4 up there? This is the how behind atonement. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we don't use this word at all in our life. Raise your hand if you've used the word propitiation in the last week in something other than a, a biblical talk. No? No? Lie. Nobody does. But when this was written, everybody knew what this word meant. It's just the word we don't use now. They used it back then. The idea is this. Propitiation is getting an angry, ticked off, frustrated God to not be frustrated and ticked off and angry at you. It's to abate His anger. When would they use this word? Well, they had gods for everything. So let's say you're a sailor, you're going to make a long journey to whatever, I don't know, where people sailed back then. And so who would you want to be propitious towards you? Neptune, the god of the sea. You'd want that person, that god, because all the gods back then were angry, weren't they? They're always ticked off and throwing lightning bolts and all kinds of stuff. They're just angry gods. And so in order to make that god not angry with you, because you don't want Neptune to be angry if you're in a little boat in the ocean, what do you do? You try to make him propitious towards you. You want propitiation to happen. I don't know how they did that with fruit baskets in the water or whatever they did. I have no idea. But that's what the idea is, right? So if you and me were sheep herders, we're going to go from A to B with a bunch of sheep, whatever random God they had for that, I don't know. We would want that God to be propitious towards us. Why? Because he's angry as a default. He's frustrated as the default. The factory setting for whatever that God is. We want to switch it over to where He's not angry with us. So we could close whatever business deal, buy whatever house. I mean, do you get what I'm saying? Kind of like patron saints, but angrier, I guess. I don't know. Um, Now, this is the deal. This is why it's in the Bible. God gave Jesus to us as a propitiation. 
yet he also was the one made propitious. He is just and the justifier. This is very, very, very important. There's a quote out of the book, Scandalous, by Don Carson. Listen, if you buy one book this year, this needs to be the book you buy. I promise. I don't show books very often. This is probably one of the more important books you could read as, as a young person at all in your life. It is a very good book. Um, he says this. He says, this marks the fundamental difference between pagan propitiation and Christian propitiation. All right? In pagan propitiation, a human being offers a sacrifice to make God happy. In Christian propitiation, the God Father, God the Father sets forth Jesus as the propitiation and makes himself happy. God is both the subject and the object of propitiation. Totally different. And they understood that back then when they read that as totally different. So think of this. Think, I'm going to try to put some skin on it for you a little bit more, all right? Because this is an important concept. This is the how behind why the cross even worked for you and me, all right? I've used this illustration a ton. You've read it a ton. You've heard it a ton. I'm going to take it step by step and unpack it for you. Remember the courtroom illustration we always use, all right? The judge. God is the judge. You're guilty, all right? Forget about all the other people in the whole thing. It's you and the judge. You're guilty. The worst crime that you can think of, you murder God, all right? That's pretty bad. And you're guilty, and there's no getting out of it. Your lawyer wasn't very good, whatever. You're not getting out of it. You're guilty. Now, we've always heard the illustration about how God comes down and says, Hey, why look so down? I'm going to swap places with you. I'm going to take the penalty for you so you don't have to take the penalty. Isn't that good news? Now, that is good news. That's not propitiation. But it's very good news, right? It's called penal substitution, which is what we read earlier. Penal just means penalty, right? Substitution just means coach putting in another pitcher. Substitution, right? That's what we have. He stepped in and took the penalty for us. Now, if you were to push the illustration a little further, it is as if that same judge said, in fact... Not only will I pay this penalty for you, right, which you're supposed to have. You see, he's not saying he's innocent. He's saying he's guilty. He's like, but even though you're guilty, I'm trading places with you. So now the judge is like, now I'm going to trade lives with you and reputations. So here's my robe, the keys to my Audi, my three beach houses. These are the numbers for all my, my checking accounts, my, my Swiss accounts. This is, this is my whole situation, and it's your situation now. And I'm going to take your sleeves, and I'm going to take your reputation upon myself. Now that's even beautiful. That's called gift righteousness, right? You get that in 2 Corinthians, where God trades righteousness. Is righteousnesses with us. Our bad one for his good one. Our trashy, sleazy one for his perfect one. Now that's good, but that's not propitiation either. All this is good. Propitiation is this. When the judge who steps down is the one that you sinned against. Now that's different, because in the Western world that would never happen. If a judge was the one that the crime was committed against, he or she would recuse themselves. Because they're too partial... They're too close, they can't be objective, and, they, and they, they can't, they're not beyond corruption. So they recuse themselves. Here, we have a judge who steps down, takes our penalty, substitutes himself for us, trades his life with us, and yet he is the one that we sinned against. Now that is unheard of. That is propitiation. Anger swerving around us. That's what that means. Now, again... Again, we're still not excited about God emptying His wrath on Jesus because Jesus didn't deserve it. 
But I want to remind you real quickly, real quickly. God did not punish Jesus for being Jesus. He punished Jesus for being you and me. That, we, that you have to keep clear in your head. If you don't keep that clear, it does look like cosmic child abuse. It does. Another thing in that. Don't ever imagine it in your mind. And I have in the past, and I've had to repent for this. Don't imagine it in your mind as God is angry and frowning and, and, and horrible, just waiting to stomp on you, but Jesus is holding him back and fighting for you, and they're fighting each other. They're not at each other. It's not God against you and Christ for you, and they just kind of slug it out, and then you come out winning. That's not how it works. It's a collaborative effort. It's a cooperative, beautiful effort. It's something very beautiful where God the Father did lose the Son. Let's not forget that. And the Son came and did it out of love for the Father and out of love for you. The whole thing was done very beautifully. It's a tapestry very well woven together. But they're not fighting each other. All right? Now... Real fast, I'm going to fly through some of this, but I'm going to get more practical. How does that show up here? How does the teaching of the cross and propitiation, how does that show up here at Legacy Church? Um, I was tempted to talk about the communion. I'm not going to do that just for lack of time, but that is one of the ways. okay? Because what are we celebrating in the bread and the, and the wine? Not wine, we're on school property, it's grape juice, just for the record. Um, but as we, as we celebrate that, that is... An image of the propitious gospel for us. Alright? So, whenever you take the bread, it does not turn into Jesus' body. That's just goofy. If you drink the wine, it does not turn into His blood. That's just unbiblical and totally false in all ways, shapes, and forms. Okay? So, but what it is, what you are doing is you are eating the gospel. You are eating a picture, a visual representation, so to speak, of what happened for you. Okay? There. That's all I'm going to do with that. Moving on. Um, one thing that it will do is it shows up here at this church is we will preach a living, dying, and living again God. And everything surrounds and orbits that. We preach Christ. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. Alright? We do this. And we don't, pre- we don't preach any other gospel. Because there is no other gospel. It sounds kind of basic, what I just told you. Why? Why am I saying this? Because you might be bored to death... Over time, in counseling situations, coaching situations, you can ask some of these young guys that I've sat down with, you can ask my wife, you can ask me, you might be bored to death whenever you have a pothole in life, whenever you bump up into somebody else in the body and there's disagreement, whenever something happens, a paycheck doesn't come, a car breaks down, things erupt inside of you, you might be bored with the fact that I'm going to keep taking you back to the gospel over and over and over and over again and see where it is you don't believe it. That's where true Christian growth happens. Where is it that you're not understanding, believing that the Bible is good enough, strong enough, whatever? That's it. Now, this is tough because I'm just like you and I like to hear new and refreshing things. I like to have new techniques. I like to have fresh perspectives. I like to have my ears tickled. So when I say that about you, I'm not condemning you. I'm with you. I like to have that. It would be a disservice for us as a church. It would be a disservice as me as a leader, as any of us as elders as a leader, to guide you anywhere else as a source of your growth than the cross of Christ. It would be wrong for us to do that. We won't do that. So what does this mean? I mean, how does this really play out? We can't beat sin without Jesus beating it before us. We can only manage it differently. Some of us are very good sin managers, right? 
So whenever I was in college, whenever I got out of the dorms, I moved into a house with a bunch of my lunk kid friends. And yes, we lost our deposit. Yes, all the furniture was no good after like one semester. It was horrible, man. It was just horrible. We were like a pack of wolves in there. And so I remember the landlady wanting us to get all of the furniture out. But all we did was we rearranged it so that next week when she walked in, it just looked like new furniture. We thought that was going to fool her. She walked in and she's like, this is the same furniture. You didn't move it out. And we thought, oh, she figured it out. We didn't want to move it out because that's too much work. So we just kind of moved it around, put this in this room and that in that room. That's what we do sometimes with our sin if we don't take it to the cross. This is what this looks like. And this is why we do this as a church, right? You're addicted to something. Let's just say whatever it is. Maybe it's wine, right? If we just focus on these cute little techniques to not get you addicted to wine, all you're going to do is go and get addicted to something else. The fight is with addiction, not wine. The fight is with addiction, not women. The fight is with addiction, not gambling. The fight is with addiction. We take that to the cross. Why are you addicted? What is so good about that that you've moved the gospel aside and moved that in? Now it's idolatry. And idolatry he takes seriously. Idolatry is anytime we move Christ off the throne, the center of our heart, and we shift something else up on there. That's what's going on. Right? Take something else. What about heartache? Sometimes we all struggle with heartache. I have heartache. Right? A lot of it. We have heartache. Now, old Luke... Old Luke would punch a wall. Old Luke would throw something. Old Luke would freak out on something. That's what old Luke would do, right? When heartache came, disappointment, discouragement, something like that. Now, if I don't take that to the cross, if I don't take heartache to the cross, then what do I end up doing? I might stop punching things. I might quit kicking things. And I might just start mumbling under my breath. I might start reclusing. I might start freaking out and getting bitter. What am I doing? I'm rearranging the furniture. I'm not taking anything to the cross. And we do it all the time. We might stop hitting the person, and we might start hitting them in our mind. We might stop sleeping around, and we might start sleeping around in our mind. All we're doing when you do that is you're shifting furniture from room to room to room, like me and my friends did, never ever moving it out. The only way to get the furniture out of the house is to take it to the cross. That's it. I know that to be a fact. Now, as a church, we do this not because it just works. And as a church, we don't do this methodically for any other reason besides we want you to be trained up to handle your sin that way and we want you to be able to teach your kids to do it and your kids' kids to do it. It's important. I don't want my son, I don't want my daughters growing up just not having victory over sin like I did because I wasn't willing, able, attentive, and persistent enough to take it to what Christ had already done. I'm going to talk about that again in a little bit. But what does this mean for Knoxville? Okay, That's what we believe is propitiation. That's the controversy around it. That's what we do as a church. What does it mean for the city? You know, $5 billion. Man, what a ton of money that is. $5 billion has been spent in the United States on the top 10 highest grossing movies of all time. In the United States, right. So take the top 10 highest grossing movies of all time in the United States, in the history of cinema, the top ten, at least nine of them included a sacrificial hero helping others at their own cost. That's amazing, isn't it? I say at least nine because one of them is Shrek 2. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't watch that. Some of you all might be appalled that I haven't seen Shrek 2. You should be more appalled it's in the top ten, by the way. Our culture, it understands substitution. It understands 
sacrifice. It understands a lot of what we talk about. It gets it. Not only does it get it, it pays a lot of money for it. It understands it. Whenever you talk to people, the problem is not understanding substitution, receiving a penalty so another might live. That's not it. The problem, the breakdown, is that they don't want to think that they're the ones being substituted for. They don't want to think of themselves as being the beneficiaries of a substitution. Because you feel inadequate. You feel weak in that. You feel like you're not put together. And we like to feel put together. Right? Some of you now, I mean, as I talk, you struggle with thinking that you need a replacement. I don't need a replacement. I need my boss to be replaced. I need my neighbor to be replaced. I need our football coach to be replaced. We need everyone around us to be replaced so our problems will go away. We don't ever like to think of ourselves as, I needed a replacement. I needed someone to fix my situation. But we do. That's why it's important to Knoxville. That's why it's important to our culture. Now, culture also, let's say they do get behind that. Let's say you talk to someone in a bar, whatever, the gym, and they understand, oh yeah, you're right, I do need a substitution. The second thing that Knoxville, our culture, the Deep South, East Tennessee will struggle with is they'll want to earn it a little bit. They might be okay with Jesus doing something totally outrageous and scandalous. They might be totally okay with the cross being just this amazing, excruciating thing. But they want to go ahead and pay it back and prove that it was worth the trade. They want to add something to it. But we can never be lovely enough to really earn that, can we? Our best. Our best. Not to take you to the passages, but really quickly, Paul says the best you can come up with is either a steaming plate of refuse, right, to be PG-13, and the other one is a bloody menstrual rag. Those are, that is what God sees as your best attempt to win His favor with your works and your performance. That's it. That's ground zero for us. Right? Even our attempt to do it is grotesque. Now, This is why whenever I talk to people, especially here in the South, some parts of the country you don't have to do this. Here in the South, you do. You've got to tread these waters long and hard. You don't just talk to people about repenting from sin. We've grown up hearing that, right? But also repent from your works. Also repent from your self-righteousness. Also repent from your attempts to hang yourself on the cross right next to Jesus and make up for where He couldn't do all the heavy lifting. We have to repent for that as well. We don't even think of that as a sin, but it really is. You cannot earn it. You cannot keep it. You cannot enhance it. It was given to you by God. Now, what does this mean for you? And then I'm done. What does this mean for you individually? By far, the number one issue in 15 years of being a pastor, of being a part of church plants, all the things we've done, by far, by far, The number one issue I bump into when working with people, lost, saved, very lost, you name it, is that they don't believe that the cross was strong enough for them. They must add to it. They don't believe that the story was good enough. Therefore, they must add to it. That is it. It's the beginning of bad religion. It's the beginning of self-righteousness. We don't like being rescued. We don't like someone throwing us the life preserver. We want to swing it out and fix it ourselves. We don't like being beneficiaries beyond us earning it. We don't mean to. We see the cross a lot of times in our worst moments. We see the cross as a nice gesture. A good start. 
almost like he's drawing us a bath, God is. But really it's up to us to scrub ourselves clean. Nice gesture. And it's difficult. It's the beginning of religion. This is why it's easier for you and me. It's easier for you to come and worship and pray and with a smile on your face when you're not habitually in sin. Right? Isn't it easy? It just comes along. I mean, it just does itself. I mean, it's just so easy. Conversely, this is why it's difficult for people to show up to anything, to pray for anybody else, to really even feel like they can approach God whenever they are habitually in sin. It's because we lean into and lean away from God's presence, His community, and His mission based on how we think He sees our performance. That's what religion is. It's bad. It puts you in bad form. We measure ourselves. We will either. We will either measure ourselves, I'll put it this way, by Jesus Christ's performance or by our own performance. This is how you beat religion. Now, let me think of it this way. In the end of all ends, however that looks, I don't know exactly how that's going to look. But whenever all the end is happening and we are before God, and however that might look, you and me are going to be judged on whatever righteousness we claim. If we claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ then God will see us as Jesus Christ. If you claim the righteousness that you've worked so hard your whole life to muster up and to put together and to get your ducks in a row, you're in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. That damns us. It condemns us. You'll be judged by your performance or by Jesus' performance. You'll be judged by your own righteousness or by the righteousness of Jesus. You see, religion is real subtle. When I say religion, I'm speaking as a bad moniker. Okay, Religion at its worst is whenever we look at the cross and we say that's really good, but I think it's going to let me down here, so I'm going to add to it. I think it's really strong, but I don't think it's strong enough to do this, so I'm going to add to it. That is what religion is. Now, what does this mean, Luke? Does this mean that we don't have to work anymore? Does this mean that we don't have to perform anymore because Jesus performed for us? No, it means you work even harder. Hear me clearly. You perform even better. You do even more. But you don't do it in order to get. You do it because you've gotten everything. Right? We don't strive to get something. We image that we've already gotten something. My activities, my performance, and I do perform. Listen, I perform. Whenever I love my wife good, like a real man loves his wife, whenever I do that, I am am imaging the victory that God has won me in the cross. I'm not doing that so God loves me more. When I'm good with my kids, I'm not good with my kids so that God loves me more. Do I perform? Do I work? You bet. All the time I do it. I don't do it just in case God will make my salvation better. I do it because my salvation is already incredible. It's fueling my activities, not striving. There's a big difference. That subtle little shift of the tracks sends the train in one direction or the other, and there are two totally different places. One is religion, and one is true Christianity. So... My question's for you. Are you asking yourself at any point in your life right now, are you asking yourself, is the gospel falling short? Is God dropping me? I feel like God is dropping me. I feel like God's going to let me down. I feel like He's leaving me. I don't feel like it's good enough news. I don't feel like it's strong enough news. I mean, is that you? Are you, are you that person? You need to assess 
Look at where you don't believe the gospel. This is how it works. When I catch myself in sin, whatever it is, right? Even this morning, even this morning, I mean, my wife knows this. Probably none of you know this besides maybe Wes. But even this morning, I was getting more. I can't explain it either. I mean, I really can't. More and more and more and more into despair. It was the weirdest thing. Little things were happening all morning. And I caught myself just getting just funkier and funkier and just more raw and just didn't want to smile. Then it went from not just not wanting to smile to not wanting to be here. (laughs) And I'm a pastor. I'm actually saying this in front of you. And then not wanting to preach. And I was just getting worse and worse and worse. Am I a victim? No, I'm not. I need to repent for it. Why is it that I feel that way? So I take it to the cross. What am I believing that the cross is not doing for me? And I thought, you know what, God, you're right. I feel like your story is not good enough. I need all these other things to go well for me to be able to relax and enjoy and walk in joy. Your cross is joy. Your victory is joy for me. Your new life is joy for me. I will never taste death. My eyes might close, my heart might stop, I will never taste death. It has lost its sting on me. Where, why should I not be walking in joy? And I found myself doing what? Not doing some self-help, whatever rip-off, trying to talk myself and try to cheer myself up. I was taking that to the cross and dealing with it, and it went away. It went away. Where are you doing something like that? Here's another one. What furniture are you rearranging? but not moving out of the house, right? What addictions are just switching from one thing to another, to another, to another, right? I was addicted from being number one in school, and then whenever school ended for me, I tried to be number one athletically, and whenever that was never going to happen, I tried to be number one in church planting, I tried to be number one in everything. And what was I addicted to? I was addicted to power. Only until I take that to the cross and put death to that does it go away. Or else I'm just going to find a new thing to be addicted to. I say it a lot. A lot of the races that I go to, these crazy ones, the dudes that are there used to be drug addicts and alcoholics. Well, what did they do? They just found a new addiction. And now they're training. You can't be addicted to training. And that's what they did. What furniture are you moving around but not getting rid of? You need to ask yourselves these questions. I'll tell you what. Go ahead and stand up. Um... As we finish, you go ahead and bring the team up, um, Kevin. We'll do the questions. Did, did we get any questions? We did? Let me just see it real quick. Yeah, that's good. I don't know. This will be a quick one. What did Jesus do? Or where did he go the three days he was dead? I could speculate. I don't know how long it takes him to do something. So it's hard for me to know what he did with all of that, you know. Um, I know he appeared in Abraham's bosom. That's a little complicated, so I won't get into that today. But I don't know what he did. The three days are indicative, though. It's prophetic. Jonah was in the whale for three days. He was going to be not in the belly of a whale, but in the belly of the earth for three days. So it was prophecy playing out. Why three days and not 13 or 7? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Some people might say they know. I don't know if they, if they really do either. Because I don't know how long it takes God to get stuff done. Simple as that. I hope that answers your question. You probably feel totally ripped off right now. But let me just pray for you. And then we'll go into worship. And hopefully in this time, you do more than just move furniture around. Hopefully in this time, you start to move it out. Hopefully in this time, some of the things, some of you guys have been unable. You can take that whole thing. I don't need it. 
Some of you guys have been unable to beat the same dadgum sins over and over again. It just punches you in the grill day after day after day, your whole life, your whole life. And some of it you've never told anybody about. Total secret stuff. And I get that. I mean, I totally get that. And a lot of it, just let me submit this to you, is because you've done bad work at the foot of the cross. You've tried to fix it with other things that ends up looking like religion without saying, Jesus has already beaten this thing. I need to take this to the cross and let that address my problem. Not be trying some new thing to fix it, okay? So as you...